You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to Revelation chapter 12 and 13 as well. We'll be in both chapters today. As you're turning there, uh, I have to say all week long, I have just been overwhelmed by the thought that this is... This is a message the enemy does not want us to hear. This might be the most important week in our study of Revelation. And and all week long I've just been in my heart sensing this message. The enemy does not want us to hear this. And and I was just reassured that I really had been receiving that from the Lord this week because we came in this morning, praise man's warming up. Everything's working fine. Fill this room with people. Boom, air goes down. It's blazing hot in here now. So we're all going to be distracted. We're all going to be distracted. I'm distracted. If you know me, you know I don't do well when I'm hot. I'm a simple guy. If I'm in a bad mood, it's because I'm hungry or because I'm hot. One of the two. I'm a simple guy. We're all going to be distracted now. Wouldn't surprise me if my microphone just goes out at some point during the message today. The enemy does not want us. To hear this. So I'm going to ask you to focus this morning. Whatever you were thinking about when you came in, all the distractions, the hot room, just eliminate all the distractions. And let's focus on God's Word this morning and what He has for us, His people. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can find one on those tables in the back, and you can grab one now or on your way out today. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, no worries. All the verses we're going to study are going to be on the screen so you can follow right along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One summer's day in 1917, in a village called Cottingley in England, Two cousins named Francis Griffiths and Elsie Wright returned home soaking wet from playing in a nearby creek. Their family scolded them for ruining their clothes, but the young girls had an excuse. It wasn't their fault. The fairies, the fairies had lured them into the muddy water. When the mothers rolled their eyes, Francis and Elsie decided to prove it. They borrowed Elsie's father's camera and returned to the creek. When they came back, her father developed the photographic plates. 
In the first picture, he saw with his own eyes little Francis surrounded by four white fairies. In the coming weeks, they take more photos, all of them showing the girls surrounded by fairies. Now, Elsie's father knew enough about photography and enough about his own daughter's impish behavior to be skeptical, but Elsie's mother believed the story. She took the photos to the Theosophical Society, an organization devoted to the study of world religions and philosophy and science and the supernatural. And at this point, the story went as viral as something could in those days. By 1920, the Cottingley fairies had become the talk of London, inviting comment from some of the most brilliant minds of the day. One author wrote of the fairies, The recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is a glamour and a mystery to life. That author was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the famous literary character Sherlock Holmes. The story of the Cottingley fairies persisted for over 40 years. It wasn't until 1966 when Elsie was interviewed and for the first time she explained that the fairies were figments of her imagination, though she didn't elaborate on her comment at the time. Only in 1983, 66 years after the first picture was taken. It was then that Elsie and Francis together acknowledged that the photographs were fake. Francis said this, I never even thought of it being a fraud. It was just, <clears throat> it was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. People often say to me, don't you feel ashamed? Don't you feel ashamed that you made all these poor people look like fools? They believed in you. But I don't feel ashamed, she said. I don't feel ashamed because they wanted to believe. People then, people now, people want to believe in the supernatural. Want to believe in something beyond what we can see. Beyond what we can explain as normal, natural. I was joking with the men in one of the small groups that I lead this past week. I was joking about how every semester, it seems, we somehow find ourselves discussing aliens or ghosts, and sometimes even whether or not an alien can die and come back as a ghost. I mean, you see, if you're not in one of our small groups, you see the kind of conversation you're missing out on. Alien ghosts. That's a great idea for a movie. It's a billion-dollar idea. Somebody take it and run with it. We want to believe in the supernatural. We want to believe there's something more than meets the eye. Now, the Bible doesn't address specifically issues like aliens or fairies. The Bible does, however, explain that we are not alone. We're not alone. There is a spiritual realm. There are a number of spiritual beings, including our most powerful enemy. In our study of Revelation, we have been learning the kingdom of God is coming from heaven to earth. The kingdom will come through many tribulations. The kingdom will come as the church, as we bear witness to the Lamb, sacrificial witness during the time of tribulation in which we're living now. 
But intriguingly, throughout the book of Revelation, we have been called numerous times now to conquer, but intriguingly, that verb has been left without an object. Conquer whom? Who's the enemy? Here in the heart of Revelation, chapters 12 and 13, we meet for the first time our adversary. This is that scene in the movie that we've all been waiting for. Every great movie, every great story has a scene like this in the Sherlock Holmes movies. We see Moriarty lurking in the shadows, but we don't meet him until the second film. In the Harry Potter series, we hear about Voldemort, but we don't meet him in full form until the fourth film. For the Marvel fans out there, all throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we get these, these glimpses of, of Thanos, but he doesn't take center stage until Infinity War. So there's always this build-up to the revelation of the main villain. And so it is here. So who is this main villain? And what can we learn about him? Let's begin with who he is. The book of Revelation refers to him as the dragon. The dragon. Now, if you've come to Faith Church today and you don't have a church background, you don't really read the Bible that much, I can understand how you might hear some of the things we're talking about today and walk away thinking to yourself, those people are crazy. Dragon. And here in a minute we're going to get to the beasts. I just want to remind you, this is symbolic language. We do not believe, Christians are not those who believe that there is a literal dragon out there hopping around waiting to get us. But we do believe in the spiritual realm, and we do believe that we have a very real spiritual adversary, and that he explains a lot of the pain that you have felt in your life. A lot of the pain. So the dragon, Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. We're told here that the dragon is also known as Satan, the devil. The Bible assumes the existence of Satan. It doesn't argue for it. It assumes it in the same way that it assumes the existence of God. Now, many of our questions about Satan remain unanswered. His origin, exactly how and when he rebelled, these, these questions are not clearly answered for us in Scripture. His origin is cryptic, but his intention is clear. His intention is to lead all of us away from God. We see that in the very beginning of the biblical story, where he is the serpent, that ancient serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. Deception has always been his ploy. It remains so today, and we'll come back to that. Who exactly is Satan? He's a spiritual being. He is our otherworldly adversary. Our otherworldly adversary. He is the supreme but not sovereign villain of the biblical story. And therefore, he's the supreme but not sovereign villain of your life. Now notice I said supreme, not sovereign. Satan is a creature, and that means he cannot be sovereign over all things. It's because God is the creator of all things. That explains why he is sovereign or all-powerful over all things. Satan is not the creator. He's a creature. So whatever power he has, and we'll get to that, whatever power he has, it pales in comparison to the power of God, the one who sits on the throne. This adversary is real. 
This adversary is real. Now, I think there's a word of warning for us here. It comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. In the preface, he warns us. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil, demons, and the like. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I love the line that was made popular by Kaiser Soze, movie from the 1990s, The Usual Suspects, great movie. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Disbelief, utter disbelief, and obsession. These are the two extremes we must avoid. What we want, what we need, is a healthy awareness of spiritual realities and alertness to our otherworldly adversary. And so that's what I hope to help us accomplish today. There's the enemy, the dragon. Now, what else can we learn about him? As we continue reading in Revelation 12 and 13, we'll learn something about this dragon, how he works, who he works with, how we can overcome him. So think of it like this. We'll look next at the dragon's targets, then we're going to talk about his allies, and then finally his tactics. So who are the targets? Who's the dragon going after? The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up, caught up to God and to his throne. So here we learn who the primary target is. Who's the dragon going after? He's going after the child. The child, of course, is Jesus. The reference to the woman here, it must include Mary, the mother of Jesus, but it must be a wider reference than that because later in the chapter we learn about the rest of her offspring and how the dragon goes after the rest of her, the woman's offspring. So this is a reference to the wider Christian community. But who is the dragon going after? The child, Jesus. The dragon is here waiting so that he can devour the child. This is Revelation's version of the Christmas story. The incarnation of Jesus. The dragon is there, but his plan fails. His plan fails. He's not powerful enough for the child. The child overcomes the dragon. Very last verse here. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is shorthand for all that Jesus came to do for us in the incarnation. He was born to die in our place for our sins. He conquered death and he ascended to the throne. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came to conquer, to defeat the dragon. Revelation will say this in chapter 12. The dragon has been defeated. All because of Jesus. We see this throughout the life and ministry of Jesus himself. Just before Jesus begins his public ministry, you can read about this in the Gospels. Where does he go? He goes into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. The dragon comes, breathing his lies, as he's done from the very beginning. But where Adam failed, where Adam succumbed to the temptation, Jesus is faithful. Jesus overcame the temptation. We see it throughout Jesus' ministry. Everywhere Jesus goes in the Gospels, it seems like he meets someone who is possessed or oppressed by a demon. 
you kind of get the impression that one out of every three people in the ancient world has some sort of a demon problem when you read the Gospels, right? You ever wonder what that's all about? What's going on there? Here's the way J.I. Packer says it. Packer says the level and intensity of demonic manifestations in people during Christ's ministry was unique. It was unique, having no parallel in the Old Testament times or since. It was doubtless part of Satan's desperate battle for his kingdom against Christ's attack on it. Why so much language about demonic oppression? Because Jesus is on the scene. And he is attacking the dragon. And he is defeating the dragon. John will tell us in one of his other letters, 1 John, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Paul tells us in one of his letters that the cross accomplishes this defeat because at the cross the record of our sin is canceled and that is what disarms the dragon he says now hang with me on this here's what this means it means if you're a believer in Jesus the dragon has no claim on you no claim on you we should not fear the dragon we shouldn't ignore him but we shouldn't fear him either the dragon cannot look to you and remind you of your sin he has no claim on you if you believe in Jesus Christ, the record of your sin is gone. You don't pay for that. Jesus already did. So the dragon can't look to you and say, you're mine, because you belong to Jesus, the victor. Jesus defeated the dragon. He has been defeated, but not yet, hang with me, not yet destroyed. Not yet destroyed. So there's a second target. The dragon goes after the child and he fails. So what does he do next? He goes after the church. The dragon became furious with the woman, the church, the wider Christian community. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. He couldn't take down the child. The child was too powerful. The child has conquered the dragon. He has been defeated. He is falling right now, but he wants to stir up as much trouble as he can, and he wants to take as many people with him as possible. You see, when you look at this world and you think, man, look at all the pain, look at all the suffering, look at all that is going wrong, that is not because the dragon is winning, it's because he's falling. Don't you see it? He's falling, and he's furious about it. And he wants to take as many people with him as he can. He comes after the church. He has no claim on our souls, but he wants to silence our witness. That's what he wants. He wants to silence your witness. And the dragon doesn't work alone. We're going to see next in chapter 13 his allies. This otherworldly adversary has this worldly allies. We meet two of them. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power 
and his throne and great authority. So we have these two beasts that we're going to meet in Revelation 13. These are the allies. See, don't, don't convince yourself that the dragon's not real. Don't say things like, I don't really believe in the dragon. I don't really think he's active because I've never seen him. Of course you haven't seen him. He works through people. He works through individuals and institutions. And that's what these beasts are all about. Before you get lost in the details, the big picture here is that the otherworldly, the spiritual adversary, he has this worldly allies and he works through them. This first beast, let's look at it. This beast is rising out of the sea. So this is a sea monster. We already know the sea in Revelation is a symbol of chaos and evil. Without exception, in the Old Testament, every reference to the sea monster, it's always a sign of a king or a kingdom with an oppressive rule. Ruling with cruelty. This beast, this monster, look at the ten horns, the seven heads. These are the numbers of completion, right? We've learned this. Giving the appearance that this beast has all power, that he is sovereign over all. It's described with language that comes from the book of Daniel. The bear, all of this stuff. This all comes from the book of Daniel. When you hit some wacky stuff like this in Revelation, you think, man, that sounds so new. It's not new, it's old. It's all in the Old Testament. It's all old. But it's describing oppressive world earthly kingdoms. So who then is this beast, the sea monster? This is Rome. This is imperial Rome. The power in John's day that claimed sovereignty over the whole world. But there's a transtemporal message for us here. It's Rome, but it's not just Rome. The sea monster, the satanic sea monster, is all idolatrous political power. Any king or kingdom that seeks to displace God, it's all idolatrous political power. That's the first beast. How is the dragon at work today? He works through politics. Oh, we don't like that, do we? Now you see why Revelation is so relevant for our cultural moment? How is the dragon at work? Idolatrous political powers. That's his ally. Whoever the king, whoever the kingdom is... When they seek to displace God, they don't become divine, they become demonic. Serving the dragon. That's the sea monster. Now there's a second beast in chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So this is an earth monster. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Sounds just like the dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Also, it causes all to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name, 666. The purpose of this second beast is very clear. It's right here in verse 12. 
It exercises the authority of the first beast. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So if the first beast is imperial Rome and any idolatrous political power, then the second beast is Rome's propaganda machine. It's the media of the day. It's the systems of influence that are everywhere and always directing people to the first beast. See, at every time and in every culture, there is always what we could call a deep story, a meta-narrative that seeks to make sense of life for us, that seeks to answer all of life's most profound questions. And in John's day, that deep story, it pointed to Rome. Rome was the savior. Rome was the provider of everything that a person could possibly need. And that deep story was told and retold, both verbally and visually. It was everywhere. It was in the architecture of the cities, the inscriptions. It was on the coins that they used as they did business throughout the day. It was in the announcements they heard in the streets, the celebrations that were on their calendars. All of this pointed to Rome, idolatrous political power. So you see, if we put these two images together, the two beasts, we have a picture of an idolatrous political system, political powers, and a complex and ever present system of influences designed to draw our attention and affection away from God and to that idolatrous political power. You see why it's relevant for us? Many of you have asked me, why, why is Revelation so strange? It has such a great message for us, but why all the strange images? Because you see, the strange gets our attention. Strange gets our attention. John's not writing a simple, straightforward pastoral letter here. He doesn't say to us, watch out for politics and watch out for media. He says, the dragon and his beasts are coming for you and they're coming for your family. And that gets our attention, doesn't it? It awakens something within us that would not otherwise be awakened. The strangeness of the images, it awakes us. John is calling us, the book of Revelation is calling us to evaluate all political powers. Government is not a bad thing. God created government to serve his good purposes in the world. But when any government rejects God, seeks to displace God, it does not become divine, it becomes demonic. The state can become satanic. It's Revelation 13. Don't get mad at me. Revelation is calling us to discern the deep story of our day. This complex and ever-present system of influences. What's the story it's telling? What is it directing our attention and our affection to? It's not God. So we've got to see that. And we've got to live in, dwell in, and tell the better story, the gospel story. Don't think that the dragon is not real because you haven't seen him. 
He works through his allies. He works through his allies. Now, what about his tactics? What can we learn here? We learn that the dragon has three tactics. As we go circle back to chapter 12 now, here's what we see. We see that he hurls accusations, just throws them at us. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Here's how the dragon works. Using voices all around us, he comes accusing us of our sin. He says, don't you remember what you did? He says, I know that secret that you've never told your spouse. I know what you've never told your parents. Don't you know you're a sinner? He accuses us. He reminds us of our own failures. But he also works another way here. He reminds us of the failures of others. See, the first one will paralyze us with doubt. We'll think, oh, I could never be loved by God. I could never be used by God. I have too many failures in my past. But the other way he works is he reminds us of the failures of others. And that turns us against each other. We begin saying things like, after what that person did to me, I'll never go back to that small group. I remember that day when I was in the sanctuary and that pastor preached on politics. I'm never going back there. He turns us against each other by accusing. Now here's the second tactic. He breathes lies. This one we know is all throughout the biblical story. It's in the very beginning. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He will promise a lot, but he will not be able to fulfill the promise. Now, here's where I want to talk about the number 666 for just a minute. You saw that in the text earlier. One of the most common questions I've gotten when people found out we were going through the book of Revelation and even throughout the series is, what is the mark of the beast? 666, what is it? Is it a tattoo? No. It's okay to have tattoos. Is it a microchip? No. Is it the COVID vaccine? No. Remember, Revelation demands to be interpreted symbolically. It's apocalyptic literature, right? So this number is a symbol. It stands for something else. The mark itself is a symbol. To be marked the mark of the beast, it means to have his stamp of approval. It's a symbol for commitment to the beast. It's a symbol for commitment to idolatrous Rome and all of its propaganda. So why then the number 666? This is going to blow your mind, so you ready? Six is one less than seven. Boom. Blew your mind, didn't it? You're welcome. Six is one less than seven. What is seven? The number of completion. The number of completion. The mark of the beast, six, six, six. Six is the number of incompletion. Lacking the power. Lacking the power to accomplish whatever it is that it promises you. Now, why the three? Because in Revelation 12 and 13, all of this is being set up 
as an unholy trinity. you got to see this. The dragon, he sends the first beast. The second beast draws attention to the first beast, and the first beast is worshipped. What is that? It's a satanic trinity. God the Father sends the Son. The Holy Spirit draws attention to the Son, so the Son is worshipped as the one true Lord. 666 is showing us the incompleteness of this unholy trinity. It promises so much, but it cannot fulfill the promise. It has no power. No power. It cannot provide for you that which your heart searches for. Only Jesus can do that. This is the dragon's tactic. He deceives. He deceives. There's one more. The dragon threatens life. He's described as the red dragon. We saw a red rider earlier in the book of Revelation. Remember, red is the color of blood. It's the color of physical violence. The dragon has no claim on your soul. But he tries his best to silence our witness by igniting within us a fear of suffering and a fear of death. See, if we fear suffering, we'll never follow Jesus. Never. Because Jesus suffered. The dragon works on us by saying things like, no, just take the easy route. Don't make that sacrifice. Think about your economic security. The dragon ignites within us a fear of suffering and a fear of death. So how do we overcome these tactics? If we know them, we can overcome them. We are called to conquer the dragon. He has been defeated, but not yet destroyed. He's coming after us. So how do we beat him? One verse sums it all up. Revelation 12, 11. If you're going to get a tattoo, get this one. Get this one. Memorize this verse. Here's how we conquer the dragon. They, the church, conquered him by the blood of the Lamb... By the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Three words quickly, very quickly. Blood, truth, death. First, blood. We conquer the dragon's accusations by the blood of the Lamb. When he looks at you and he reminds you of your sin, you say, You're right. I am a sinner. But my sin has been dealt with. Jesus took the punishment for my sin. I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. So damn you to hell, Satan, in the biblical sense. You got no claim on me. I am covered by the blood of the Lamb. You preach the gospel to yourself. You apply the gospel to all of your conflicts with your brothers and sisters. Because if God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, then that means you've got to forgive the inexcusable in that other person. We fight his accusations with blood. Blood of the Lamb. The second word, truth. Truth. 
Notice the reference here to their testimony. Testimony to the truth about Jesus. We fight deceit, the dragon's deception, with the truth. But that means we got to know the truth, folks. I say this because I love you. I love you as your pastor. And so I say this to you. Some of you need to get off your phone. Some of you need to get off of social media. Some of you need to stop reading the news as much as you do. You will never spot the dragon's deceit by studying deceit. It's not the way it works. You will spot deceit by knowing the truth. Blood. Truth. Last one. Hardest one. Death. Death. Here at the end of the text. They loved not their lives even unto death. How do we fight the dragon's threats on our life? By willingly laying down our lives. By courageously making sacrifices. Sacrificing our money. Sacrificing our time. And if God calls us to it, even our own lives. Because we know the hope of the gospel. We know that death is not the end of our story. Because it was not the end of Jesus' story. Blood, truth, and death. Martin Luther says it well. He'll have the final word today. These are the words from his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That one little word is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you have already defeated the dragon. He's falling, and he's furious about it. So he's coming after us. He's doing his best to take down as many people as he can, to stir up as much trouble as he can. So we ask you, God, humbly, as people who are in need, we ask you to empower us with your Holy Spirit so that we will indeed remember the gospel each and every day. We need to preach it to ourselves this morning. Empower us with your Spirit and guide us into your Word. There we will find truth. There we will develop the ability to spot deceit. And God, empower us with your spirit so that we will learn how to deny ourselves.
how to make the sacrifices that you've called us to make. It's not easy, and at times we just don't want to do it. And that's why we need your spirit to work within our hearts. Your kingdom is coming, God. We believe that. It is coming from heaven to earth. It is coming through many tribulations, and there is a very real and present adversary. We're not afraid of him. Nor are we ignoring him. The war is real, and we want to be ready for it. Protect our families. Not from sacrifice. Don't protect us from that. That's hard to pray. Protect us from unfaithfulness. We want to stay in the fight. Whatever that means. Because Jesus, our hope and our trust is in you. Not in any politician. No king or kingdom. Only you, Jesus. Only you.